Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Brian Kaplan, author of books such as The Case of Education, Myth of the Rational Voter, and now Open Borders. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much much for having me. And we've had uh, Tyler Cowan, we've had Robin Hansen, we've had uh, Alex Tebrock, and now uh, and now we have you. So uh, so it's uh, you know it's we, about time. Exactly. What took you so long, Eric? Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so let's let's talk a little bit about open borders. This, this is something you've uh, you've made a case for 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 a long time. When you talk about why uh, why come out with a book right now, and uh, let's get into what what is the case for for open borders. All right. So, I mean, why do it right now? I mean, to be honest, I started working on it before the 2016 election. So, the I was not really motivated by current events. Uh, however, current events have since made the topic markedly more engaging for people. And I say many more people are talking about the idea of open borders, although usually it's just to attack a view or that so that a person doesn't really hold. But in my case, I, I do agree with it. In terms of, so what is the case for it? Basically, I mean, I, like, you know, like, I, mean, I start with just the you know, moral presumption of, isn't it a bad thing to do to a person to say that they can't live and work where they want? You know, which does not mean that there could never be a reason to go and restrict that right. But I'd say that is the kind of thing that would require justification. And then in the book, I just go over all the justifications in favor of limiting migration and telling people that they're not allowed to live and work in the country where they want to. Right. And so I, mean, I am an economist, so I spend a lot of time on the economics of it, but I go over many of the other areas as well. Why don't we talk about what do you think is the most underappreciated element uh, of immigration uh, ah. that, people, uh, that people don't really appreciate in, in terms of open borders? Yeah, I mean, great question. So I'd say the, the most un- underappreciated aspect of immigration is the enormous gain to mankind of letting uh, even a very unskilled person move from a poor country to a rich country. What's the gain? Uh, people in poor countries have very low productivity. They produce very little, but simply moving them to a rich country really overnight dramatically increases their productivity, which means that not only is the migrant better, but they enrich the world by producing so much more. So if you think about typical Haitian Port-au-Prince maybe earning $5 a day if he's lucky, and yet you can go and move that same guy to Miami and suddenly he's producing 10 times that. And it really does seem like it is a change in what a human being can accomplish in the U.S. versus Haiti, which again, should not be so surprising. You know, just imagine what you or I could accomplish if we had to live in Haiti. What this means is that most, when most people think about the benefits of immigration, they only want to talk about high-skilled immigration. I say it's not just high-skilled. It's really the benefit of getting any human being out of desperate circumstances into a place where they can make use of their talents. Right. So, you know, the, the usual view basically leaves you thinking that unless someone is a rocket scientist or a baseball, professional baseball player or a supermodel, that it's an act of charity to let them migrate. And I say, you know, it's not charity. It's a matter of allowing people to take advantage of their productivity and to contribute as much as they're able to to the wealth of mankind. Yeah. So I want to go through some of the common arguments and you go through some, some, some most of these in the, in the book. One is that uh, immigration restrictions uh, protect Americans from poverty, that maybe they reduce 
global uh, inequality, but maybe they contribute to intra-country uh, uh, or in, uh, inequality within within countries. Mm-hmm. How, how would you respond to that? Right. So I basically begin with the number one principle of economics, and that is that the secret of mass consumption is mass production. When you have a large increase in production, the benefits are the benefits then are enjoyed by people, almost anyone who consumes. And in particular, when you have a large change in production, a large increase in production, then generally virtually everybody gains, right? So things like the Industrial Revolution, like who gained from it? Is it just the people in factories? And the answer is no. Of course, it's anyone who bought any of the stuff being produced in those factories wind up gaining. Or like who, ben- who, who benefited from the you know, from, you know, from uh, you know, polio shots? Is it primarily, is it really just the people involved in making the vaccine? No, it's actually everybody that didn't get polio benefits or like who benefits from Uber. Is it just the shareholders of Uber and the drivers? No, this is a large change in the wealth of mankind, which winds up getting spread out to a very large number of people. So, I mean, this is the main way that you should think about it so that when immigration leads to a large increase in production by letting people move from poor countries, rich countries, the gains really are going to be spread out to almost everyone. Of course, yes, the migrants do gain, but they gain by producing a lot more stuff, which then gets uh, sold to other people. Again, that's the, the main way of thinking about it is just focusing, focusing on that. Now, of course, you know, the ideal thing uh, economically would be to let in all the immigrants that produce what you buy and none of the immigrants that produce what you sell. So again, ideal for me would be if we let in all the immigrants except foreign-born professors or really foreign-born economics professors. And that would be the very best deal for me, right? And for each person, you could say, yeah, just let in everybody except the people directly competing with you, right? But that, of course, is a prescription for, uh, you know, you know so it's something that you know, one person can get that deal, but if we all get it, then we lose all the benefits. So that's the, that's the mistake. What is the effect on, on Americans' wages? Right. So, you know, there's been a you know, you know, good amount of research on this. And again, the, the basic punchline is that when people are directly competing with the immigrants, then that is a net loss for them. But for all the other kinds of immigrants, it's a gain for them. And when you average it out, it looks like it is a gain for at least almost everybody. Again, probably the most plausible losers, losers again, are professors, research professors specifically, because it, the, there is an enormous loophole for research professors, which is why there's so many foreign-born professors in universities. And so, you know, like, you know, basically I'm in one of the very few occupations that does have closed open borders, but you know, again, for all the other occupations, of course, there are, they're, they're benefiting from this and you, you pay less for college and everything else. What about the argument that, you know, the sort of abusive welfare state argument that immigrants uh-huh. don't work, but live off our tax dollars, or, or how do you square broadly, you know, immigration and, and things like basic income or other sort of, you know, redistributive uh, policies? Right. So what I say is this is one where, there is no non-boring way to resolve this question. <laughs> you have to be boring to do it. You have to look at numbers, right? You know, like, like, so like, you know, do immigrants actually, you know, like, like, are, are they a net fiscal burden or are they a net fiscal benefit? Uh, you can sit around going and talking about examples, but that really shows next to nothing. You can go and do intuition about complex accounting, which again is a highly unreliable method for figuring out anything like that. Or you can do the boring thing. All right, let's go and get all the numbers and crunch through them. So anyway, uh, the National Academy of Sciences had a big panel of people that went and worked on this, and their punchline is that the immigration that the U.S. receives right now, given given all of the realities that we have, given the current welfare state, given the kinds of immigrants that we have, 
is that right now immigrants are a sizable net positive, right? So immigrants use less, fewer dollars worth of resources than they pay in taxes, right? So that is the result for the U.S., right? It's, of course, the one that Americans care about the most. Uh, If you go and look at other countries, the numbers are going to be different, of course, right? Uh, Again, probably for most European countries, they will be less favorable, although still... I uh, let's see. I haven't seen any really good numbers saying that they're unfavorable. I Meaning, essentially, like the kind of place where you're going to see that immigrants are are a net fiscal negative would be one where you have a lot of mineral resources, and every immigrant who comes gets a, gets an equal share of the resources. So, you know, like related, you know, there's been work on what is the net fiscal effect of another baby, and what this research says is that the birth of another Saudi baby is a big fiscal negative for existing Saudi citizens because every baby that is a Saudi citizen gets a cut of all that oil, all those oil reserves, right? But for countries like the U.S. where we, have, we get very little of our, of our standard living from natural resources and where they're privately owned anyways, then it's a totally different matter. What is your opinion on, on something like universal basic income and how do how you think that could potentially work with immigration? Yeah, so I mean, I, I have... You know, debated several times on the universal basic income. I strongly oppose it. I think it's a terrible idea in many ways. Again, like the, you know, the simplest is just that you're wasting most of the money. Like, you know, like universal basic income means you're giving money to everybody, and yet most people are perfectly able to take care of themselves, which means that most of the money that you are go, handing out is actually giving, you know, going to a person that does not need it, and that is a terrible way to handle philanthropy. Right, you know, like, like any kind of sensible philanthropist tries to target their money to something where it's actually going to have a high payoff, and the universal basic income very stubbornly just says we're going to ignore all the evidence that we have about who about where the money is actually going to do the most good, and we're just going to spread it around equally to everyone. And then again, how do you pay for uh, pay for that? Well, the answer is you need astronomical taxes to pay for a basic income that people consider acceptable. Yeah, so of course you could do a basic income of 100 bucks a month, and then it would be cheaper than the system we got, right? Or maybe 50 bucks, uh, 50 bucks a month. But to go and get a basic income that people think is sufficient to take care of people, then you wind up so you know so essentially breaking the bank. You know, if you just go and ask people, all right, so how much? Well, you know, like if you have if you have zero income, how much money should each person in your family get under basic income? And in my experience, people usually say, oh, like twelve thousand dollars a person. All right. And then the next question is, you know, for every dollar that you earn, how much is your basic income going to be reduced by, right? So basically every system has some kind of a clawback. When you earn a dollar of income, you don't get to keep a dollar or else there's no way to fund the system. So people usually say, ah, like 25%. That's okay. All right. So now do the math. For a family of four, if each gets 12000 a year with zero income, then that means the family gets $48,000 a year. And if there's a 25% clawback rate, that means that... The uh, that that would be that the family will earn a hundred. Well, let's see. We have to have an income of one hundred ninety-two thousand dollars a year before they actually break even and and be and start to pay into the system. So, I mean, essentially, this is a system where you put all the taxes on the families with an income over one hundred ninety-two thousand dollars a year, which is an enormous burden to be placed upon a very small number of people. Meaning, you know, meaning that you're really going to see and break the bank if you try doing something like this. Right. So, I mean, I'd say out of people who've looked at the numbers, virtually no one thinks this is a good idea. The main way that universal basic income maintains its popularity as a ma- is just by focusing on the logic of it rather than the actual empirical numbers of what's involved. 
Yeah. So how should policies uh, try to decrease inequality or, or should we be trying to do that by another mechanism or should we not be trying to do that? Yeah, well, I'd say that you know, step one is find laws that are on the books that are making inequality higher, right? So since I've been talking about immigration, there, you know, you know, immigration laws make inequality vastly higher, not measured inequality because it's always, it's always measured within a country, but like actual inequality where some people's kids have a great life and, uh, and other people's kids are, are, are starving. Right, you know, immigration laws are a very large part of maintaining this global system of inequality, preventing people from moving from poor countries to rich countries, and thereby going and taking care of their kids. So, I think, you know, like you know, step one for reducing inequality is to get rid of laws that make it so hard for poor people to move and get a better job. Uh, something that is, you know, also you know, you know, a large effect is just housing regulation. So. Right now in the U.S., the price of housing in high-wage areas of the country is truly astronomical. Uh, and you know, economists have gone and looked into it. Why is it that it's so expensive there? And the main reason is just that you, it is very hard to build more housing in the rich parts of the U.S. So it's very hard to build more housing in New York, in the Bay Area, Los Angeles. Right? All these areas with high wages are also areas where they have very strong building regulations, which make it hard to go and build houses. Right and, and and housing in general, right? And if it were legal, there would be enormous housing booms, which would allow people to get affordable housing in high-wage areas. So essentially, the system right now is that price of real estate locks poor people out of, uh, of, of the rich areas of the country, which means that uh, one of the main areas for bettering their condition or one of the main ways of bettering their condition is taken from them. Now, again, is this a big effect? Uh, the answer is yes, it is an enormous effect. So... You know, like there, you know, there's one paper by Enrico Moretti and a co-author where he just says, imagine if we just dialed down zoning regulation in New York City, San Francisco, and San Jose down to the U.S. average. So it's not an abolitionist thing. It's just saying just dial the zoning regulation in those three important areas down to the average. And I think he comes up with this would raise the GDP of the U.S. by about 20%. Just this one act of moderate deregulation in these three areas. You know, you know, so like, again, this is something where people don't think of it as being poverty policy, right? But I say like poverty policy is whatever policy can alleviate poverty. So if it's repealing regulations, then why can't that be poverty policy? So yeah, so I say like always to always start with finding things the government is doing on purpose to make things worse. And, you know, again, that's just like, you know, like step one. And then, you know, like after that, of course, there's plenty else you can do. Well, what's one big thing that comes to mind after that? Let's see. So... Other regulations, so you know, there's occupational licensing, which uh, which makes it uh, hard for poor people to go and get more uh, more skilled jobs because they have to go through a whole lot of additional regulation to get those. You know, things like you need to go to barbering school in order to be a barber if you want to do it legally. Uh, so, you know, some other important ones. Uh, yeah. So again, like we're talking, you know, you know globally, uh, you know, very important is you know, regulation that tries to keep out foreign business from poor countries. Right, you know, both directly and indirectly. So again, there's this long-standing idea that foreign countries are coming as exploiters to go and rip countries off. And again, this is really, really just you know, xenophobia. And the real story is that you know, foreign investors are the drivers of progress uh, you know, around the world. Of course, there are some that do bad things, but the general rule by, by, a lot, by, you know, by far is that foreign companies come and they not only create good jobs compared you know, by local conditions, 
uh, but they also go and you know they 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 teach good management techniques. They you know they actually you know they provide the knowledge that countries need in order to modernize, not just scientific or technical knowledge, but you know social managerial knowledge, which is very important. Uh, so you know, like in poor countries, well, well, you know, like we often think about you know they have like these you know, you know evil greedy businesses. A much more common story is that people in poor countries are just very low skilled self employed people. Right. Yep. So you can just imagine, you know, like some of the, the, you know, the least educated, least competent people, you know, and saying you have to go and run a business every day and just imagine how well that would work out. And that is a lot of what goes on in the third world every day is people who could do a perfectly good job if managed are, are told like you are the person that makes all the shots and has to figure everything out. And like, as you might guess, they don't do a very good job of it. If we repealed, you know, uh, a lot, we'll get to charter cities in a bit, in a bit but if we, if we sort of made, you know, had uh, competitive markets uh, for governments um, and, um, you know, repealed a lot of the, the regulation. If we had much more market-driven society, uh-huh. would, we, would we be likely to ha- uh, have more uh, wealth inequality, but also more prosperity? As in, you know, people would be a lot richer. The, the rich would probably get richer quicker than the poor would get richer, but people would be a lot richer. So that's one question. And the second question is, why do you think we sort of have this, uh, you know, you were the myth of rational voters, so you know how rational people are. Why do you think people are rationally concerned? I guess the, is the story of the last hundred years, you know, everyone's gotten a lot richer. The rich have perhaps gotten richer faster than the poor have, but you know, ev- everyone is so much more prosperous and yet we keep focusing on inequality versus sort of overall prosperity. Right. So you know, would a market driven society have more prosperity, but more inequality? My view, you know, definitely more prosperity, but uh, like I'm, I, I, I think actually it's more likely there'd be less inequality if you measure it correctly. So here's the thing right now is our measures of inequality are quite poor and especially they're usually nation by nation. So you know, one of the main things about immigration is when you let in low, when you let in low skilled immigrants, they will raise your me- the measured inequality in your country because you have a bunch more people who are going to be at the bottom of the income distribution. But if you do measure inequality the right way, where you actually are consolidating countries together and then seeing what's happened, what you see is that immigration moves people from being very poor to being in the middle, right? So, and again, the same thing for housing, housing, of course, is, so in most, you know, so like housing would go into wealth inequality, but probably not income inequality. So again, I would say that actually properly measured inequality would go down. It is true that in a market driven society, you will always have inequality. Right. I mean, and then I would flip it around and say that, uh, you know, not, another way that we screw up inequality numbers is when you look at, you know, communist dictatorships, especially normally they have very low measured inequality. And yet, if we just go and say that the dictator is effectively the owner of the country, then we get a very different picture. And we think of those as the most unequal. I remember, I was once talking to Walter Scheidel, who has worked a lot with these international inequality numbers. And he was talking about how well the Russian Revolution really did, and really did sharply reduce inequality by basically by wiping out the rich. And I said, "Well, what if we just count the Soviet Union as being Stalin's personal property?" And he said, "Yeah, well, if you did it that way, then the Soviet Union was super unequal." And then I said, "Well, why shouldn't we count it that way?" And he's like, "Well, other people don't." But yeah, they're like, "Why not?" Right. So, and you know, I think it's a very reasonable to say that Stalin was for all practical purposes, the owner of a nation of slaves. And so we should count it as being an incredibly unequal country. Yeah. So, you know, what I've been thinking is we, you know, we need to have sort of a counter to equality and that we need, you know, some overall term of prosperity or or make it as emotional as, as equality is because, you know, GDP numbers just don't resonate perhaps as as much with a common person. But what you're saying perhaps is, 
you know, maybe that, or maybe we actually need to redefine inequality mm-hmm. so that it takes into account, you know, global inequality. Yeah, just to say, like, like current numbers go crummy, and you know, and meaning, of course, of course, it's very hard to get someone to start thinking. Well, did Stalin really own the whole country for all practical purposes, or for most practical purposes? But again, I mean, that's really what you know, the the right question to ask. I mean, for someone to go to Stalinist Russia and say, "Oh, this such an it's such an equal country," it's like, well, in one sense, you could say it's equal because if you're not you know, like you know, people have been reduced to similar levels of. Very low, me- very low measured measured income and wealth. But on the other hand, if you think of it in terms of one guy can order the de- can and did order the deaths of millions of people just because he didn't like them, well, that sounds like highly unequal country. Talk about charter cities, or, or rather, your in your ideal world, are there you know thousands of Singapore's or or thousands of of, of, of you know CEO driven cities or, or countries, or what, what is sort of your utopia and what markets for governments. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that sound, sounds like a really good idea. So I don't know how much your, your audience has, has heard about this idea, but to I me, mean, basically you've got places like Hong Kong where, you know, it's a, a city that was just governed by very different and far better laws than the country that people thought it belonged to. So like, you know, people thought of Hong Kong as part of China, but it was governed by British law and the British law was a lot better. So Hong Kong became one of the richest countries in the world while mainland China uh, starved, uh, star, you know, stagnated at best and starved for much of it, right? And if we could just go and create a lot more places like Hong Kong, uh, you know, that would seem to be a really big improvement. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like, like insofar as you can make that happen, that sounds great. I'm not optimistic that countries are going to actually allow it because basically, you know, to allow a charter city is close to admitting that you have failed and that you're not to be trusted, Right. So, you know, like, you know, the efforts to get, say, Honduras to go and adopt a charter city where it's governed by Canadian law for 99 years. Right. But to get Honduras to do that, they basically have to admit that they have done a, a very poor job and that something and, and that it'd be better for foreign law to govern some of their sovereign territory, which, you know, is true, but it wounds their pride. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, like, like, you know, like, you know, general changes in governance. So, you know, like, you know, charter city sounds like a nice idea. Uh, you know, just, you know, allowing a, a larger role for private contracts makes a lot of sense to me. So, particularly, you know, letting someone just opt out of the regular judicial system, sign a contract saying in the event of dispute, you can't take this to court. It has to go to an arbitration company. You know, that, that is a great way of getting around regulations that neither side of the contract really considers to be a good deal overall. I'm curious what you think of the sovereign individual thesis or how, how likely you, th- you think it is I mean, broadly that, you know, governments are going to have less power over time that, you know, things like cryptocurrency will help separate money and state um, and individuals are going to have more power and be able to you know, create their own cities or, uh, or, or, or countries even averse, you know, the vision of, of, of China, which is a more, you know, centralized and, and mm-hmm. command and control yeah. system. How do you think that's going to play out? I just think things are basically going to continue roughly, roughly as they are right now. So I don't think there's going to be a tech dystopia where the government uses all this technology to monitor and control all of our lives and even more than it does. But on the other end, I don't think technology is going to do much to undermine the power of government either. So you know, the main thing is that you know, like even if people could go and do a lot of their transactions in crypto, as long as you exist in a physical location, as long as you've got some real estate – then the government can the government can tax you, and they're going to. So you know, I mean, I say that like you know, uh, you know, the median term. I would just say you know, demographics, uh, the aging of the population means that government as a share of the budget of, the, of GDP is going to grow. 
right? I think there's you know, like, like great popular support for old age programs. And when push comes to shove, uh, countries are more likely to raise taxes than to cut benefits. So, and, you know, like crypto might be a way of hiding some of your assets, but then government will raise taxes on the other kind of assets that can't really be hidden. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm you know, you know I basically, you know, something you know, like, I, I don't think that things are going to change very much either way. If you could wave a wand and uh, change anything about or create sort of your ideal tax code or philosophy behind it, what, what would that be? Uh, yeah, well, so I mean, this is actually something that almost every economist in principle agrees with, but hardly anyone says. So, you know, just taxing bad things. So, you know, economists usually think about taxing negative externalities. So, yeah, so taxing air pollution, taxing water pollution, uh, going and having congestion fees on on roads during times when the, when the, when they are in fact crowded. Uh, I mean, the, you know, so these are all ways you can raise a lot of money. As far as you know, there's only one country on earth that actually does this noticeably, and that's Singapore. So I think they get about 25 percent of their budget from both you know taxes on pollution and congestion fees uh, for transportation. Right. So I mean, these are basically ways where you go and you kill two birds with one stone. And then furthermore, in terms of just the morality of it, saying, you know, like, you know, given that, you know, there is there, you know, it doesn't make sense to say, well, there's an unlimited right to, to put out as much poison in the air as you think. On the other hand, well, it's just you know, is it merely breathing. Is that an offense? Well, there's something in the middle where there's a point where when you say it becomes, uh, and, you know, it becomes a violation of the rights of others. So just going and taxing people to keep them under that seems like a, a very clean way of doing it. And, you know, just the logic of it is pretty hard to argue with. It's like almost the only thing I've heard is the idea that, once you start raising money by taxing bad things, then government will just start calling everything bad and going and persecuting people for no good reason, which, you know, you know, it does happen occasionally, but still I would say that that is to me like, you know, the very sensible place to start. What about income or wealth or capital gains or consumption and sales? Like how should we think about taxes there? Yeah. So I mean, say so like these are all much worse than taxing bad things. Because right? you know these are these are all good things that people are doing. So to go after those when you've got some other way of getting revenue uh, makes well, you know, very little sense to me. I mean, you might say we we just need more revenue than we can get. So we've already gone and heavily taxed pollution. We've got congestion fees and everything, and, that, and everything. And now we need to do more. Again, you know, then I would say like next thing is you know, selling off government assets for that there's no reason for the government to own. So if you ever looked at a map of how much of the United States is owned by the federal government? It is a, a crazy amount of territory. Yeah. So I think it's a bit under half, but yeah, it's, it's a very large area. And what's striking is, is the geography of it. Because if you look on like, like east of the Mississippi, the federal government owns almost nothing. And west of the Mississippi, the government owns, I think, over half, actually. I think they own something like 90% of Nevada. It's like crazy numbers. I mean, like, these are all resources that could be, could be sold off, right? And private developers, like there's no real reason why the West half of the U.S. couldn't be privately owned to the same degree as the East half, right? And you might think nobody wants to go and own desert, but tons of people want to own deserts. There's lots of stuff you can do in deserts. So Texas, I think, you know, like I think, like that's actually one like fairly privately owned, despite all the desert in Texas. So I mean, these are other ways you know, that you can go and, and 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 raise revenue. Again, in terms of taxes on those other things, you know, so you know, there, you know, there there is a you know a common view among economists, which isn't exactly which isn't wrong that. You know, consumption is less bad to tax than income because when you tax income, you're essentially double taxing earnings because basically you have to first pay taxes on your labor income. And then secondly, you have to pay taxes on the interest on whatever you're earning. As to how big an effect that is, I don't know. I think it's mostly just driven by the logic of the model rather than 
any really good empirical estimates that that matters very much. Yeah. What, what are the countries that you uh, admire the most in terms of what everyone else can learn from them or what, what they should learn from them, whether it's Singapore, whether it's, you know, yeah. mentioned Hong Kong, whether it's Israel or. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'd start with the United States. <laughs> the United States has a lot to teach most countries on earth. So, I mean, not only in terms of, you know, economic policy, but also, you know, like tolerance and doing multiculturalism well, right. And, you know, like, like you know, being good at assimilating immigrants, just like, like just in terms of things like, you know, size of housing and car ownership and, uh, you know, and uh, consumption of meat and you know, like all of these other things. I, mean, I really do think that like, you know, the, like U S standard living though, you know, quite high in international numbers is, is underrated uh, by, you know, you know, just not counting some of the, well, not, not really properly measuring some of the big advantages of the U.S. And also with, you know, labor market regulation, the U.S. really does have quite a bit less of it than most of Europe. So again, I think that West, you know, that really, really, you know, the EU has a lot to learn from U.S. labor policy, although it varies by country. So, you know, like, you know, Germany, you know, Germany, the U.K., Denmark, Switzerland, uh, you know, like are much more like the U.S. So those are other good countries to learn from. Right. See, in terms of less obvious places to learn from, yeah. So Singapore has a lot of good lessons, right? You know, just things like you know, trying to raising revenue by taxing bad things, right? Or, or you know, like, or if you want to call toll roads to be a tax or not? You know, it's, it's just yeah. Just, and pollution is the obvious one there, but are, you know, should we tax soda? Should we tax Facebook? Yeah. You know, you know, taxing things where you're actually doing you know direct physical harm to others. The, you know, the, the, those are the ones that are really obvious, or where your use of the resource just messes up for others like a road, like too many people are on the road, it's a parking lot, not a road, and then you can't use it. So those are the obvious ones in terms of taxing things in order to protect people from themselves. I'll, you know, I'm much less sympathetic to that for you know, mostly obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, so like other countries with things to things each. So you know, like, you know, you go around the world and just find even countries that are messed up in a lot of other ways that have something good about them. So like they're wrong terrible in almost all ways, but they've got a market in human kidneys over there. So good for them. Right. Uh, so you know, I say, you know, that's a country we can learn a lot, you know, so we like, and for the education system, Switzerland, we can learn a lot from, you know, Switzerland has a you know, far lower rate of, of college attendance and a lot more vocational education. And as a result, they wind up getting, you know, like a very highly skilled workforce without wasting people's time very much. Oh yeah. Actually that, that was one thing uh, going back, you know, other things government can do in order to, in order to alleviate you know, poverty and inequality, right, is just the you know, like you know, government has heavily subsidized the existing system where basically you need to go and get a college degree to get a good job, right? And you know, I say that like you know, well, this is mostly because government has so heavily subsidized college that's that it's easy to do, and there's lots of people with the degrees, and then employers can very readily just say, "I'm going to throw your application away if you don't have the degree." I mean, this is one where people focus on how great it is if you have a really uh, great student from poor family, but they forget about all of the not so great students from poor families who now like are really excluded from better jobs. Whereas in the older system, uh, where it's more based upon apprenticeship and learning by doing, you know, opportunities were more available for people from poor families to rise. And you know, one of the big criticisms you, you get it, um, in the book, but I'm curious to go deeper on, is uh, the assimilation uh, part. That, that, but sometimes people go even deeper, and not not that it's sort of the aesthetic of assimilation, but just that it fundamentally you know could change the stability, you mm-hmm. know, maybe countries in, in Europe. Um, and I assume you you might say something like, "Hey, you, you, that it's not true, or that's not the immigrants' fault. That's the, you know the country just needs to assimilate them better." Is is there a world 
in which, uh, you know, if you look at countries we mentioned, like or maybe Norway or some, some of these smaller countries are just more homogenous um, or have less immigrants. Is there a world in which there's a thousand Israels and if it's like, uh, and, and, you know, people are just like homogenous groups are just organizing together and starting your own cities. So instead of, hey, move around somewhere else, it's just, hey, start your own. Um, and, and this is our, what, what does immigration policy look like in a world where charter cities be? Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, you know, the main problem here, like, like you'd have to imagine then, you know, government ceding, you know, th- you know territory to a thousand different city states in order to do this. In terms of like what they would likely, uh, likely to do, almost, uh, you know, at least very likely that whatever country ceded the territory would insist upon very favorable treatment for the citizens from their own country. So I think you would have that. Israel is interesting because, like, it's really not that that homogenous. Uh, I mean, like, there's you know, like you know they have a very large Arab minority, and then you know the differences between Eastern Bloc, you know, Eastern Bloc Jews, Ashkenazi Jews from the you know, like the, the immediate post-war era and Sephardic Jews. Those are you know like, and then never mind like Ethiopian Jews and things like that. So, and actually, I think it's <laughs> really, really just isn't isn't that homogenous. I mean, in terms of assimilation, what I say is you know there's like a solid core to assimilation of saying. It's a good thing if people can speak the same language together. People, if people know enough about their society that they can t- that they can get a job and be self-supporting, right? So, I mean, you know, there, there's that. You know, like if they've got some idea of that, the other people around them are not their enemies and they and they aren't uh, like on, on the edge of violence, that kind of thing. So, again, to me, that's the kind of assimilation that really matters. Is just whether you can be a functioning, independent adult in and be self-supporting in your society. And then there's you know like the aspirational. Uh, homogeneity or assimilation of like making every you know, of making people like really feel very similar. And again, you know, that's one where I mean, I just don't think that one's very important. And again, I think as as an idealist, dangerous. Of course, you know, partly I'll say that I'm weird enough that the idea that, that like I know there's never going to be a country where most people are like me. So when people talk about assimilating people, I think, wow, so that's going to be a country where I'm going to have to be like you, and I don't want to, right? So and again, like, why is it so important that I have to be like you rather than? Like, you know, like I'm, I'm an independent adult. I take care of myself. Why do I have to be any more similar to you than that? Right. Where are you on the sort of, uh, anarchist, uh, perspective, uh, or spectrum? What what is in your ideal world? What is the, the, the proper role or scope of government? Yeah. Well, let's see. My slogan here is I am an anarchist, but not the crazy kind. (laughs) I'm not the button pushing kind. I'm not the kind that says the government just closed up shop today. Everything would be great. Uh, I am I am the kind that says that there are a lot of things that we think of as inevitable monopoly governments that are not a monopoly now, and there is plenty of room to move towards further privatization. And very and we can just see how far we can go, right? And I think we can go, you know, very far or maybe all the way. So you know, things like I was already mentioning, like the, you know, the right to sign a contract where you opt out of the court system. All right. So imagine if when you go, got a job with someone, you signed a contract and you said that in the event of dispute, I will not and cannot legally take my employer to court. Instead, any dispute will be resolved by the Labor Arbitration Corporation. All right. So you go and sign that. That then removes the issue from the courts entirely. And then you know, whatever dispute you have gets resolved by an arbitrator. And like that, to me, seems like totally doable. Right. And in fact, just, you know, like a, you know, a better system all around, you know, like the main objection people have is then, well, people are going to waive their legal rights. And, you know, my reply to that is, well, if you really think that people are, are like are so eager to waive their legal rights, there's probably not very good rights for them to have. So, you know, like if you have a legal right to go and 
you know, sue your, sue your employer because, uh, you know, you know, because you thought that he was mean to you. All right. Well, basically like, like, like if in order to get you, you know, if, you know, to get that job, you say, well, let's see, I could do a job right where I can go sue my employer, but I make $2,000 less or I can you know, get, get this one where I, where I can't sue him, but I get $2,000 more. Yeah. I think it was probably most people would much rather get some extra money and not be able to sue. But, you know, to me, that just shows that these rights are, they're, you know, it's kind of like mandatory opera tickets where it's an expensive thing that people don't really want very much. And if they could then just go and say, you know, I don't want them very much. Can I just have the cash instead? That would be a better system. Yeah. The reason I ask is, Oh, some people advocate for it seems a no brainer, at least to let high skilled immigration uh, in your country. But what I'm curious on the low skilled, some people also say, what about all the criminals, uh, you know, et cetera, if it's totally open borders, that's why I asked, I was asking, you know, what do you think the role of, you know, should government be running prisons, et cetera? Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? Yeah. So essentially when I talk about immigration, I usually don't want to talk about doing any other radical reform because, you know, my whole claim is that you can just do this one thing and the rest of the system can continue just as it is. I mean, you know, so you know, right now we've got pretty good data on immigrant criminality. And what the data says is that in the U S now immigrants have lower crime rates than the native born population and by quite a lot. All right. So, I mean, this is, this is one where I would just say it's you know, like, you know, it's not a reasonable worry uh, because the, you know, they, they just are not crying. You know, they are not crime prone. You know, in terms of, you know, what, you know, what if they were, you know, I said, well, like how much more, if it's just a moderate difference than going and changing the rules because of that seems like a mistake to me. If you're really talking about one where you know, half of immigrants are war criminals, that's a very different, very different, you know, that's a different matter. I'm not an absolutist on the, you know, again, there I would think about, all right, so, you know, maybe we, we could just let it, you know, like, like we'll start with women. They're not going to be war criminals, so we can protect her. So that's not a problem. And then, you know, well, what's the next stage? So, you know, can you, go and do a background check or something like that. You know, like what would it take in order to handle the problem? Right. You know, but my, you know, my general view is the kinds of things that really scare people are just not serious problems and they need to calm down. So yeah, in terms of what about uh, immigrant terrorists? So, you know, like terrorism is statistically one of the very smallest problems that the world faces. Well, people care about it because it is dramatic because it's vivid because it's a great story. And you know, like my view is that's just the kind of attitude that people need to get under control and stop worrying about things that are dramatic and start worrying about things that are in fact serious. Yeah. So if you had to steal man, the skeptical case for, you know, and some people, Eric Weinstein, others, you know, sort of are say, Hey, we said some mixed immigration. What is sort of the, how would you steal man that? And then how would you respond to that being Ryan Kaplan? Steel man for a mix? What, what do you mean by mixed immigration? Oh, or maybe, uh, sorry. Yeah. Maybe only high skilled or, or maybe immigration restrictions uh, in general. Yeah. What do you think is the, is the strongest counter argument to your argument? Yeah. So and it's, you know, like strongest counter argument really is just precautionary principle of things here are quite nice the way they are. And we are very confident we can just stay the course. And on the other hand, if we were let in a lot more immigrants from a lot of other places, then you know, probably we'd be fine. But there's still like we're multiplying our downside risk by enough that I'm worried. And again, like things are so nice for me right now that I just don't want to rock the boat. <laughs> that, is, that is probably the most compelling one. So, yeah, I'd probably, probably just go with that. And, you know, like in, ter- in terms, of terms of apply to that, uh, I just say like, you know, the precautionary principle in general is one where like no one actually lives a life this way, right? No one actually says, well, my life is fine. And yeah, I could go and drive to a movie, but how do I know I won't die along the way? So I'll just stay home. Right. So yeah, you could live your life that way. Almost nobody wants to, almost everyone's willing to go and take small risks of 
terrible things happening in order to get minor pleasures. So as to why countries should not view risk in a similar way, I really don't know. And again, and, and again also this is one where it is a, you know, a, a remarkably callous view to say things are fine for me, so who cares what's happening to other people? Which I think you know, really is what it comes down to of saying, yeah, well, we let in you know, a million refugees. Sure, they'll, they'll, they'll survive, but I can imagine a weird scenario where this could end up badly for me and or maybe an immigrant you know, like a refugee goes and kills my child or something like that. And again, that's the one where I would say, yeah, I mean, logically it's possible, but you know, it is just not reasonable to go and deprive a million people the chance to leave a war zone so that you can get your blood pressure down by this very modest amount. Again, I, I know I know that's not convincing to people. I mean, just to give you an idea. So once I was actually at a conference where there was a panel of people who have had family members murdered by immigrants, right? And I was there thinking, what, do I, what would I say? I, well, I wasn't on the panel and I wouldn't want to be, right? Because I'm like, well, what do you say to them? And it's like, hmm, I just like, like I'm really sorry this horrible thing happened to you, right? Again, like I, w- I would not be inclined to argue with someone who would face that kind of tragedy, but- if they were to say, well, what would you do in that situation? You know, I, I, my honest answer would be, I would very strongly try to remind myself that just because one person from, from a country went and killed someone that I love, that's not an excuse to go and treat, well, you know, and treat everyone from that country you know, very badly, right? You know, like in the same way, the like, like if a serial killer were to kill your child, that doesn't mean that it, it is morally acceptable for you to go and kill his child in revenge, you understand that when that kind of tragedy strikes a person, they're not, they don't want to listen to reason. And yet, you know, that it is not okay for them to go and get revenge against somebody's child, you know, despite the, the, the you know, experiencing really the worst tragedy a parent can experience. Well, in, in the case of Israel, for example, which we just talked about, you know, a large Arab minority and growing and there's real demographic concern there for them, uh, for the Israeli government. Would you still recommend open borders in that case? Like should countries be worried at all about demographics in, in Europe, you know, Yeah, so Europe, I think it's crazy, right? I mean, like like the like there's just you know hundreds of millions of Europeans, and the problems they've had make new are are newspaper headlines, but they are not in fact serious problems. I mean, whenever people talk about you know the horrors of immigration in Europe, you know, I've I've walked around a lot of Europe. I've gone to areas that are supposed to have been ruined by immigrants. I don't know what people are talking about. I don't think this is based upon experience. It's based upon reading headlines. Right, headlines that tell you what are the worst things that have happened in an area with four, over 400 million people. So, you know, like really, really doesn't show much of anything. Right, in, term, in terms of Israel, I, I repeatedly get crazy people emailing me things about open borders for Israel, which is, you know, essentially this is a a fake group meant to go and try to embarrass or humiliate or troll people, who, uh, people like me. Uh, you know, so what I would say is. I have explicitly said I'm not an absolutist. If you can show that immigration is a noticeable chance of leading to civil war, then I am well more I'm more than happy to go and bend the principle. Although even there, I want to get you figure out what is the le- the smallest uh, you know, deviation we can do and still deal with the problem. So, in the case of open borders with Israel, is it reasonable to think that this would lead to civil war or something like it? And my honest answer is yes, because we actually have two cases of countries bordering Israel that did have either immigrant-driven civil wars or close to civil wars, so both Jordan and Lebanon, as a result of large amounts of Palestinian migration, did either get a civil war or get close, close to civil war, right? So, you know, like, you know, this, you know, the same danger for Israel, I think, is there. 
Uh, I think there's no excuse for you know for, for you know for most of what Israel does. Uh, so you know, I, I'm, I'm not a supporter of Israel. I don't support any government. All governments do terrible things. You know, there's no reason for Israel not to accept like unlimited immigration from you know from non-Muslim countries. I think, they, and furthermore, I think there's no reason they can't go back to the system where it was very easy for Palestinians to go and work in Israel, uh, which you know, like you know, even 25 years ago was still very common, and now is almost gone. Right. So you know, no reason for you know the kind of extreme you know, the extreme border checks and things they have. I mean, I, you know, so that is a case where I think that under open borders, it would likely lead to a civil war, you know, it's like one in three chance within 20 years. So that seems like a good enough reason to me. And, you know, there's not, nothing, nothing to do with supporting Israel in particular, right? Yeah. So, like it's, it's about like, like, is this a, this a case where anything like civil war is likely? And again, if you're trying to understand, so what is it particularly going on? You know, part one is that you have, High immigration of a group that is very of a group that already has a very strong sense of internal identity, and then secondly, that are quite hostile to the country they're going to. You know, I would not be at all worried about the U.S. taking in all the Palestinians, or or I wouldn't be worried about the U.S. taking in all Israelis and all Palestinians, because both groups would just be a drop in the bucket here, and neither would have the slightest hope of ever getting control of the government. So. You know, like, like you can see, like in the U.S., like the amount of violence between Palestinian migrants and Jews in the U.S. is, you know, is next to nothing. I mean, a lot of it is just that, you know, like both groups realize there's no hope of winning here. So we're just going to re- relax and not go and try to take things over or fight for power. And again, that's the problem in the case of Jordan and Lebanon is that you did have the migration of a large, fairly, you know, fairly tightly knit group where, they thought they had and really, really reasonably did have a chance of, of seizing control of the government. And again, that's likely to give you civil war. So you know, basically letting in lots of different kinds of migrants to the point where no, or where no one group has any viable prospect of taking over, you know, that's where I think you think you're fine and that worries about social breakdown are very far fetched, but you know, every now and then things are different. Totally. And so uh, earlier you said when you, you don't sort of, recommend other drastic claims. Let's say people were, were totally on board with that and said, hey, Brian, I want all of your, your drastic uh, drastic recommendations. Uh, and if you could wave a wand, you know, we'll follow them no matter how controversial <laughs> they may be. Uh, what, what might some of those be, like the biggest, most impactful uh, you know, recommendations? That- yeah, well, so I, mean, I have a book, The Case Against Education. And uh, in the book, I have a paragraph saying my first choice is just end government funding for education at all levels. And it's paid for by students, family, and charity, and that's it, right? So I think that's pretty controversial. Uh, in the book that I'm working on, poverty right now, like, yeah, so that's one where you know, like you know, most of the book is going to be about repealing laws that cause a lot of poverty, but then at the end, I'm going to talk about going and yeah, and, and getting rid of the welfare state. So you know, that's also pretty controversial, I would say. So, you know, like, you know, like ending government, ending government subsidies for healthcare, which you know, I think is just some of the most poorly spent money that governments do, but uh, there's that. But, you know, and I think like, like the more you listen to me, the more you can realize why I, you know, I usually just try to focus on one issue at a time. And because, <laughs> you know, again, it's one where you know, like, you know, I can understand you just sound crazy and you discredit yourself. And I'd, I'd rather not, you know, I'd rather go and do one, a, a book, a book length defense of one crazy idea than, just go and tell people ten, you know, like you know, ten quick paragraphs about ten ideas, each one of which horrifies people. 
Yeah. What? Uh, so the myth of the rational voter you wrote, you know, over a decade ago. If if you could change anything about the political process in the United States, uh, what might that be? And, and let me also broadly ask uh, how you know you, you're very familiar, obviously, and you've written a bunch about so the problems with democracy. How would you reshape that, or what's a what's a better system? You know, like, I think you know, like you know, the, the simplest thing and the one with the most precedent is just restrictions on the range of things the governments are allowed to do. So yeah, like if there were, you know, like if there were constitutional amendments saying that you know, governments cannot restrict people from you know, from building new housing, right? Things like that, or you know, like, you know, government is not allowed to restrict immigration. Like you put things like that in the constitution, that seems like an improvement to me. In terms of you know other uh, other possibilities, so you know, in the book I talk about you know giving the Council of Economic Advisors the same kind of power of the Supreme Court where. Supreme Court can say that something is unconstitutional. You could have economists saying that a law is uneconomical and can't be done, right? And you know, these are all, of course, uh, you know, quixotic pipe dreams. But uh, since you asked, in terms of you know more moderate things, you know, of course, I mean, a lot of it is just to, like tone it down. So just putting extra hurdles on government's ability to do bad policies. So saying you need a two-thirds majority to go and do policies like this, you know, like you know, even things like like two-thirds majority for budget. That may, you know, that seems like a, likely to be a good move in terms of reducing the amount of wasteful government spending. Right? You know, logically, it doesn't absolutely have to do that, but seems seems likely to me. What have we learned from the experiment to expand democracy in the, in the Middle East, uh, and, and how do we think about the next uh, you know decade between China and U.S. and sort of their competing uh, you know government systems? What, what's going to be more more popular or, or, or get more hmm. credibility or legitimacy? I always sort of wonder about these questions saying, what have we learned? I'm like, well, who's the we? <laughs> is, is the we you and me, Eric, or who, who is the we? Uh, but in, in terms of, you know, sort of like, like what, you know, like policy, you know, you know, policy elites have learned. I mean, like out of people actually uh, like had studied the Middle East for years. I think that they already had like a you know, moderate skepticism that, you know, bringing democracy to the Middle East would then lead to anything like Western democracy. And I think they have some notion that it would be Islamist populists would be likely to win and would then bring their countries to the brink of ruin, right? I think what we've learned in the last 10 years is that it, it's not just a moderate chance of that. It is a high chance of that. And, you know, like even, um, you know, Muslim democracies like Turkey that seemed like they were doing okay, like are reverting back into some quite, you know, quite serious authoritarianism. So, I mean, yeah, so, but, you know, like, you know, Iraq, Egypt, yeah, I mean, like, the idea that, or, or even, of course, um, you, know, you, know, you know, Gaza Strip, you know, like, you know, all cases where there was some optimism that, it, that once you go and bring it back to the people, they'll go and opt for something, you know, for something better, and I just don't see that that is uh, what happened at all, and sort of the, you know, you know, like, the simple view of, like, you know, the people that are getting power are going to be you know, angry populists who will pander to the lowest common denominator of nationalism and religious fundamentalism seems pretty, pretty close to true. You know, hindsight bias is a serious issue, but I do think I had this view for, you know, you know well before the Iraq war, right? So, and again, like, you know, like, you know if, you know, there's ever a Saudi, you know, Saudi democracy, you know, I think it will go like the way of Egypt or, or Iran. It's going to look, look very ugly because right now the you know, public opinion is actually worse than elite opinion in those countries, as bad as elite opinion is. And I know a lot of the bad stuff that the elites do are probably there to pander to the, the general population and you know, keep them placated. So mostly so they can retain power, but also to prevent things from getting even worse. 
in terms of what we learned about you know, Western democracy, so this is one where I'd say like we've just seen a lot less than people think, and you know, people again just overrate the importance of headlines so much. Right? It's just hard to go and read a headline and not think it's important, even though you know, like when you if you go and look at the newspaper uh, headlines of thirty years ago on a random day, most of that doesn't seem important to you, right? Or fifty years or whatever. So yeah, I mean like with hindsight. Newspaper headlines seem like trivia and not important at all. But when, like, like, but when you're when you each day when you read them, I think it just warps your brain. So you know, there is an idea that just you know, like, you know we've learned more than we like more more has happened than really has. Kind of the idea that like now we've seen the rise of populism. I'm like to me, that's just crazy. No, populism all the time. We've, democracy is always has always populist. You're always having demagogues going and saying a bunch of feel good nonsense to the population. You know, like. The main difference to me between someone like Trump and Kennedy is, you know, Kennedy is genteel. He's got his Harvard accent, right? And he talks in a way that is acceptable to the people at Harvard. But again, it's basically the same kind of, you know, hyperbole and absurd overconfidence and scapegoating of people that he doesn't like. And I see this as really, as virtually a constant in democracy. Again, you know, like, you know, so Trump has a different personality, different style of rhetoric. But, in, but again, in, when, when it comes down to what has he actually done that is so different from what other people have done, I don't think there really is a good answer to it. I mean, again, the, the headlines are uglier. A lot of the reason is that the media dislikes them more, and so they put the ugly head, the ugly stuff on the front page instead of not reporting it at all or just putting it on, like giving it less attention. So yeah, of course, you know, there's immigrant detention, you know, like under Obama too. As far as I know, he still deported you know, a lot more immigrants than Trump has. Right. But, you know, he was genteel. He had class you know, like, like, you know, he seemed upper, you know, like an upper class guy. And so people don't worry about it very much. And, you, know, a lot, you know, a lot of what I try to do is to scrape away the, the, the superficialities of rhetoric and, 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 and that kind of thing. And, you know, and like your social identity and just get to, yeah, but what really happened? What did he really do? What, did he, what, did, what actually occurred because of this person being in power instead of somebody else? You know, to me, that's just a lot smaller than it seems. Because of the bias that you're talking about, there's this corner of the internet is basically advocating for CEO-driven countries. So basically limit voice, but increase exit. So yeah, mm -hmm. th thousands of, of CEO-driven countries. So, hey, I may not have, have a vote here, but if I don't like it, I could just go to any number of others. Do you uh, sympathize with that utopia or wh where do you differ at all? Again, but yeah, the idea of, yeah, it'd be better if there were you know, like less voice and more exit. Yeah, I think that you know, I'm, I'm all I'm all for that. Uh, you know, I I don't think that it's very realistic. But, and in particular, so you know, like I often have this argument with uh, Robin Hanson where he likes proposing new institutions, and I just like proposing policy changes. And right, and and, and I say, look, you know, like you know, like you know, basically with your thing, we have to like like we have to persuade them to the uh, change the institution. But in order to do that, we have to first go and tell them, well, how will your institution go and change policy? And then we have to convince them the policies are will be an improvement. And I say I'd rather just cut to the chase and just convince them about the policies, even though I know that it's hard to do that. But still, I'd rather get to the point instead of trying to say, all right, let's have a new institution. And what would that do? Well, all right. So anyway, here's the thing is that you know, like, you know, there are so many ways that you can move in your direction much more moderately like within the existing framework. Things just like reduce the amount of intergovernmental grants within the United States. So right now, the federal government has a federal tax and they take a lot of that money, they hand it back to the states. Right now, there's a old economic model from the 50s called the Tebow model that 
says, you know, like that makes no sense. Why isn't it, you know, why don't you just say, look, the federal government's going to cut taxes. And if the state governments want to go and raise taxes to go and pay for the things the feds used to pay for, they can do that. And if the citizens of the state are like, won't go and support those taxes, then it's probably better not to have those government services. Right. So that's something that I think is a lot easier. So rather than going and creating new cities, you could just try to move back to an older level of federalism where states are expected to fund their own spending with their own taxes. Right. And that itself, I think, you know, like makes a big difference in terms of voice versus exit. Because right now you can move to another state, but it still is part of the same federal system with the same with a similar funding system. Whereas in this classic TBU model where each state has to fund its own expenditures with its own taxes, then you can really are going to have a much wider range of options among states. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I would think that would be a much more sensible thing to push for if you wanted to get this kind of change is just to say, let's cut down on intergovernmental grants and say that states, if you want something, you got to pay for it out of your own tax revenue. And if you don't want to raise the taxes, then the government won't do it. Should we care about the uh, total fertility rate in, in general, or, you know, demographics, like as, as we think about total fertility in terms mm-hmm. of, like who's having kids, like wealthier people are not having kids versus non-wealthy people having kids. Like, are there any concerns that we should have there or, 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 no, or no? Again, what I would say is, you know, like, like you know, my, so my view is that people are a good thing. Not only is it good to be alive, but also more people have, uh, have large social benefits that we, that we generally neglect. So particularly like, you know, we, like we, we know, we've heard a lot of, of complaints about the bad things that having a high population does and the complaints are not wrong. So, you know, like higher population leads to more pollution. That's true, for example. All right. Uh, however, we hear very little about all the good things that higher population does. You know, these are things like higher populations lead to more innovation. Almost all innovation comes from high population parts of the world. Right. That's just a fact. And it makes sense because the more people, you know, like the, like the more people you have, the more, the more, the more creative people that are going to come up with the great new ideas you're going to have. And so when you look at history or current data, you will see that, Innovation comes, you know, very disproportionately from high population areas. I mean, you know, so and and then you know, like you know things like why do people like living in cities versus rural areas? Like, there's a huge premium that people pay to live in urban areas again because it seems like people would rather live in a densely populated area with all the bad stuff that brings and all the good stuff that brings, and they'll pay for that net package. You know, you put all this together, and, and I'd say that. Within the observed range, it looks like more people is a good thing. So that's the main reason why I think that low fertility is bad. It's just that we're missing out on all these extra benefits, again, as well as all the extra people that would like to be alive and would enjoy being alive. You know, to me, and again, I don't think that it's going to lead to disaster that we have low fertility. It's just uh, disappointing and we're missing, missing these great opportunities. In terms of your relative fertility, again, you know, so this is one where you know, if you actually had a segment of the population where they were so awful that they were net negatives for the world, then I would understand this. Um, you know, I just think that this is, uh, you know, if, if this group does exist, it's just so rare, it's barely worth talking about. You know, like even children of Charles Manson, most of them don't go, you know, as far as I know, no children of Charles Manson have grown up to be serial killers. So, you know, like even there, you might think that that would be a very, on like an unfavorable group, but you know, like when there's more children of Charles Manson around, I'm actually not worried. You know, like, do I think they have an elevated chance of doing something bad? Yeah, but it's you know, it's just not elevated enough that to 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 make me wish that anyone had not been born. So yeah, so like when I see differences in fertility, like my main view is that you know, is, you know, it's a shame that 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 groups that contribute even more don't have even higher fertility. But you know, like, I'm 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 never one to 
well, to see that you know someone has a big family to say, oh, that's terrible, right? So you know, like they're happy to be alive, and like even if they're not going to be Einstein's, they're still probably going to be useful members of society. So why would I go and ever push ill on them? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like we're in a once CRISPR gets really good, and you know, whenever that is, maybe that's mm-hmm. longer than we think. We're going to have to wrestle with sort of what people call eugenics, um, basically in terms of like, what, what do we edit? What do we not? What, what do we optimize for? What's, mm-hmm. and so, you know, because like n- n- the question, you know, based on what you said is like, should we uh, optimize for, for a populace that has a higher IQ or higher certain um, statistical, and, and that's, you know, very difficult to do and very weird to do certainly right now, but when CRISPR comes, mm-hmm. that will be easier in, in different ways. Yeah. So, you know, you know let's see, I have, I have a, a couple of pieces where I talked about this. So, I understand why this scares people because people imagine a totalitarian government going and telling everybody what kinds of kids they're allowed to have. Um, right? and that, I say that scares me too, but one where individual parents can decide what they want their kids to be like, that sounds like a, a, a great thing to me and likely to be good for the families and good for the world. Right. So what I say is, you know, there's a bunch of things that almost every parent wants and these are things that society should want too. Almost everyone wants their kids to be healthy. And if you go and give them genes for health, almost everyone would do it. And a society where almost everyone is healthy is great, right? And then, you know, like, like almost everyone wants their kids to be smart. And so, yeah, a society where people much smarter would be better than one where they weren't. Of course, you know, doing this the doing this the the the, the sensible way of of you know, not of killing people or sterilizing people or any other horrible thing, but it's like I'm going to have a kid, but I'd rather have a smart one or not. I'd rather have a smart one. Yeah, that sounds like a big improvement to me. On the other hand, the kind of things that uh, the, you know that governments would do that individuals would not do uh, is you know to again try to breed a you know a homogenous society where everyone supports the government. So if governments control eugenics, then yeah, they would probably go and want to go and, and and like make people get genes for docility and patriotism and loyalty to the status quo and so on. And again, that is a scary thought. But again, if it's just individuals doing it, then individuals are probably going to want their kids to have values similar to their own. And if they can find genes that, that, that predict that, that's what they're going to look for. So you're going to see Christians are going to want to get Christian kids and Muslims want to get Muslim kids and atheists want atheist kids. And so this will preserve the intellectual and cultural diversity of society and prevent the rise of any kind of totalitarian or dystopian horror story. You know, as long as, the, as we retain the principle that it's parents that decide how to use the technology, not the government, then I'd say I'm very optimistic about this future. future. Yeah. Although, you know, usually I do think things are going to take a lot longer than the uh, technophiles do. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think you know, progress will happen. But basically sort of my rule is that anytime technology is similar to a comic book superpower or something out of science fiction, there's going to be a bunch of smart people who let their wishful thinking carry them away and think it's going to happen a lot sooner than it really will. But uh, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, that they're ultimately wrong. It just means that they probably won't live to see it. Let's talk about trade for comments. And I think there are people like Peter Thiel who believe that Trump and China is actually, uh, you know, meddling with the, the trade agreement is actually a good thing, that we didn't have a, a fair trade agreement to, to agree with. But then also they might go further and say that uh, trade presents some trade-off against uh, innovation uh, and you're, everyone's just sort of copying everyone else. Maybe people are focused less on innovating. Is there a, a reasonable argument against total free, free trade in your opinion? Let's talk about that. Is, you know, is there a reasonable argument in a win imaginable world? Sure. You know, then it's like, you know, if someone came up with a doomsday device, 
and it was a good and and it was, and it was you know like you know like Norway comes up the doomsday device should they go and allow it to be sold to every country on earth no but in terms of the real world like what is the well, you know, like is the, is there any good case against free trade and I would say no right I mean like you know, most obviously because whatever the restrictions on free trade that you offer are going to be chosen by actually existing governments who have a terrible track record of abuse and incompetence so you know, you know should not be trusted with that kind of power uh, in terms of Free trade is bad for innovation. Again, like you know, to me, this is like no one. Like, like, I've never heard of anyone who would say you know, like Virginia should not trade freely with the rest of the U.S. because it's bad for innovation. So I mean, it really comes down to maybe you want to go and get more innovation in one particular area. But again, like in terms of living standards, the important thing is you know, like the, the innovation of the world and not of any particular country. I mean, like, like in, in understanding the economics of innovation, there's a line from I believe Thomas Jefferson where he says. You know, ideals like a candle, and idea, new ideas like a candle. I can, you know, so like the fact that I have lit other people's candles does not extinguish my candle, right? And really, well, like, you know, like it seems like, like the mentality behind saying free trade is bad for uh, for innovation is to go and say we're not going to go and light candles across national borders, and we're going to try to go and trap ideas within countries, you know, which is you know, like, like, like I say, like a very anti-innovation idea, right? I mean, you know, it's better to let you know let let ideas spread for, spread freely. And could someone say back to you, hey, you're really focused on, you know, global, globalism, basically, you know, equality trade, but hey, we have, you know, enemies in China and Russia and it's, 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 you know, not everyone is willing to play ball in the same way that, that we are. And so we get hurt as a result of that. Right. So, you know, what I say is like, how are we being hurt? So like, you know, the main thing, one of the main things China's accused of is subsidizing its exports. So then Americans get cheaper stuff. Why is that bad for us? I can see why people in China might complain about it, but understand why it's supposed to be our complaint. In terms of China and Russia being enemies, I'm tempted to say this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, but fortunately, I don't think it's really self-fulfilling. I think this is mostly hot air because people want to sound tough and aggressive. And you know, China and Russia, if they're enemies, then those are the kinds of enemies we should want to have because this is such a mild struggle for anything. I mean, like, you know, in terms of worrying about China or Russia like launching nuclear weapons on us or anything remotely like that, I don't know any sensible person is actually afraid of it. You know, like I remember the 1980s where it really was not crazy to think there could be a nuclear war in the next 10 years and that we could live in the world that we're in, which is fantastic, and try to find negative things about it. I mean, it really just shows like how messed up people's thinking is and the lack of historical perspective. And again, and of course, the lack of fear that you might wind up making an enemy that you didn't have by making a big deal out of things and calling them an enemy. It's the way that people don't worry about that. I mean, it just, just really puzzled me. Back when Russia went and seized the Crimea, there was an op-ed about this in The Economist saying how we had to get really tough with Russia. And then I wrote a piece saying, you know, you don't know the, the, the right way to deal with Russia. It just says, look, people like the idea that getting tough will improve things. But history says that sometimes getting tough with countries makes things worse. And like as to which one is actually more common, what I do know is people have put very little effort in figuring it out because people usually respond to things emotionally and getting tough sounds a lot better than just trying to get along with people and compromising and keeping things in perspective. And I remember when my kids were little and I'd read them stories where there's some kind of a horrible bully and their, the reaction was always, they got to fight back. They got to do something about this. And my reaction is, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe they should just go and give the bully what he wants and leave them alone. Right? <laughs> and, they, and, and they didn't let him like this idea just not, it does not emotionally appeal to kids. Right. And like, I have a general theory about human beings, which is that kids are, are mostly just unusually honest adults. 
right? So, you know, I think adults don't want to be seen as being childish. Basically, adults are very childish. Well, they, you know, they, they have a gut level emotional reactions to things and they want to act on those emotions, right? So going and, and like looking for affronts and what other countries do and then saying we got to get tough with them, you know, it comes very naturally to human nature, but uh, it's just the kind of thing we really need to calm down about. And again, like this does not mean I am apologizing for China going and imprisoning a million Uyghurs, right? But in terms of like, what could the U.S. possibly do about that? I just don't see much of anything that could be done other than saying we're happy to take your Uyghurs, which I think would be a great idea. Yeah, you know, like uh, Uyghurs, you know, hang out the Uyghurs welcome sign. I mean, I I can even believe that China would be happy to get rid of them, actually, uh, given given their given their mentality. I don't know. I guess whether they really take the deal. I don't know. I mean, I, I bet they would allow at least a lot of them to come, right? So, I mean, that's something the U.S. could do, which, like, is not going to endanger the peace of the world and the international economy, whereas, you know, the current path, you know, I think in the end, things are going to work out okay, and it's just not that big of a deal. And remember, as like I said, headlines just aren't that important. Is Trump really going to destroy the global international trading system? I think that's very far-fetched. But, you know, he is playing with fire. And speaking of uh, state of nature, as you're talking about your kids, are you more of a Hobbesian, uh, the, the, the natural state of state of war and mean institutions to civilize us, or more of a Rousseauian that, uh, you know, the noble savage and institutions corrupt us? Wow, two terrible thinkers. Which one am I more of? Or what is your I sort mean, of... I mean, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, usually people say, like, Hobbes versus Locke, so I say I'm more, 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 more with Locke. Yeah, so I, I actually have a whole spiel on Thomas Hobbes. So, you know, Hobbes uh, infamously had this idea that uh, you know, in the state of nature without government, you know, the life of man is poor, nasty, solitary, brutus, and short. Now, when you go and read Hobbes carefully, he has one of the most bizarre answers to a thought experiment that I have ever read. So Hobbes has a thought experiment where there's no government, two strangers bump, each, bump into each other in the wilderness, and then what will they do? Hobbes actually does say they immediately try to kill each other. They'll immediately try to kill each other as soon as they see each other. All right, now... Like I said, like just slight, like slight tweak of the thought experiment. So imagine that you are on a desert island. You've been, like you've been stuck in this desert island all by yourself for five years, and then another human being washes up on shore. Is your first thought really to murder that person? <laughs> like, like who would think that, right? And, and then you like, so right, how about the person is so much bigger and stronger than you that if you don't kill them right then, you know that if they were inclined to, they could kill you once they coughed all the water out of their lungs. Even then, like who on earth would go and pick up the rock and go and kill that first person that you've seen in years? And again, like, like with my students, I say, how do you have to change this thought experiment before Hobbes's prediction ceases to be crazy? And again, I, I say, like, you've got, it has to be something like it's World War II, you're an American on the island and a Japanese soldier war washes up. Furthermore, you've also, you've seen a lot of active combat. You've had friends killed by Japanese soldiers. And third, it also needs to be that you haven't been on the island alone that long. I think if you've been on the island for two years, I don't think you kill that Japanese soldier, despite everything else. You're like, huh, well, maybe he's, one of, maybe he's okay. Maybe he's cool. Maybe we can be friends. So, I mean, Hobbes' view of human nature is just so demented in terms of just like you know, not understanding human beings' desire for companionship and for, you know, and, you know like, like, and, the, and just people don't like being lonely. Human beings are sociable. You know, of course, the idea that human beings are selfish is right, but it's a much broader idea of human selfishness. And by the way, that thought experiment gets even crazier if it's two people of the opposite sex. 
kind of like, like then, like, like no one would think that you're going to murder the Japanese nurse who shows up on the island. It's just a crazy prediction. I mean, you know, like, so I say, like, you know, Hobbes does have this very strange view of human beings. Like, you know, Rousseau, on the other hand, kind of the idea that savages are really great, nice people, and that's wrong too. Uh, you know, so, you know, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of brutality in primitive societies, very high murder rate, and of course, treatment of outgroups is quite poor. Now, you know, like, you know, like, you know, these are both very smart guys, of course, but, you know, like, it's tempting to say, well, they wrote hundreds of years ago, they didn't know, but I, you know, like, the kinds of arguments that I would give, like, for Hobbes, he could have figured this out. Right, he just needed to be less dogmatic. I mean, like, you know, like basically latched on to this theory about the nature of man, and then didn't really test it against even some very basic thought experiments. And what was Locke's key insight, or what was Locke yeah. right? You know, so that Locke basically has he has a much more of a social sociable view of man, and does think, you know, rightly that human beings have some kind of a moral sense. The idea that like you feel guilt and shame this is not just something that society happens to teach you; it's something that he, that is very built into human beings. I mean, shouldn't be surprising given that dogs feel guilt and shame. So if we got if we if we've trained canines to feel it, the idea that humans don't have it is pretty pretty hard to believe. So yeah, you know, basically Locke just has a much richer view of human motivation. Human beings have a lot of motivations, and again, Hobbes sort of narrows it down to this very strange short list. So yeah, so that's that's silly. And then again, then and Rousseau, I mean, I mean, he's so strange on so many levels because he was personally such a horrible person. Right, yeah. You know, so I mean, most notoriously for having new, you know, numerous kids and then dumping them off in French orphanages in a period when most orphans died. In a way, like here, he's talking about people being naturally good when he's one of the best <laughs> counterexamples. Like he's one of the like people most lacking in sympathy for actual concrete humans, even his own flesh and blood. That you know, like you know, like you really have to wonder, well, you know, what kind of a person was he? I would hesitate to go and think of him as a sociopath, but. You know, it was like, like, you know, sort of like a man child, like so someone who's just like, you know, babies cramp my style. Right? You know, yeah. my, my guess is actually he sent them, sent them right off to the orphanage. So he didn't, I couldn't remember whether he ever even met the babies. So again, like, you know, classic thing a human being will do is if you don't want to care about someone, you don't meet them face to face. And then it's just an idea. And then you don't have any feelings towards them or not much anyway. Austrian economics. There's, there's been a, a rise of, of uh, a resurgence in some sense with the rise of Bitcoin. Uh, in, that, in that type of thought. And, and you were a devout Austrian uh, economist and, and you uh, pivoted or you gave that up and you wrote quite a bit about it. What's the punchline there? And how do you sort of revisit that you know, in light of what's happening right now with Bitcoin, if at all? And what, what do you think might you need to happen in, in the future in order you know, to change your mind on that or, or, or to change mainstream views on that, if, if anything? Yeah. So you know, like when I was probably like 17 through 19, then I was a no, yeah, so yeah, I wouldn't say it was you know dogmatic Austrian, but yeah, I, I thought the main theorems were true, and then and you know, thought regular economics was wrong, and then eventually I just really just you know, spent more time going through the arguments and finding flaws in the arguments, and so you know that I do I wrote this piece why I'm not an Austrian economist where I, where I went over over the flaws, and, you know, like probably the most fundamental one, which is really zero to do with Bitcoin, is you know, among very hardline Austrian economist. There is an idea that the that uh, like if something is not expressed concretely in action, that it's that it, that it doesn't really exist. So like like you can't have a preference that you don't act upon, right? So and again and then well, who cares about this even? Well, it's, it's basically the way they wind up using this strange methodological principle to say that there's no such thing as externalities or public goods or market failure. So again, you know, like you know, to me, like, like in hindsight, this just seems. You know, like, of course, totally unconvincing to anyone that doesn't already want to want to agree with your conclusion. 
But then you just like this very dogmatic view. Well, wait, it seems like I have a lot of preferences that I don't act upon. Like right now I have a preference for getting a chocolate, chocolate chip ice cream cone, but I'm talking to you. And so I'm not acting on the preference, but doesn't mean that I don't actually like chocolate, chocolate chip ice cream. It's great. I love it. Uh, so, you know, you know or, or like, you know, something of much greater import, you know, if an asteroid is coming for the earth and you aren't able to raise enough money to deflect it, you know, you raise a billion dollars, but you need a trillion. You could say, well, I guess people only value their lives. You know, mankind only values their lives at a million, at a billion dollars. Or you could say, no, people have preferences. that They're not acting upon strategically. So that's, uh, you know, like, you know, my main case against Austrian economics is really is about these very fundamental principles that you know, I think to most, you know, like sort of like to your rank and file Austrian, they may not have even heard about it, but to people who spend their lives on it, this is, these are the crucial issues in terms of Bitcoin. So, I believe that like like the real Austrian result, you know, connection there is Hayek's book denationalization of money, uh, where he did propose you know, basically that you know, Hayek could issue his Hayek bucks and this could take off. And this is one where I will say I have changed my mind because I used to think this was just insane, and I say like you can't just go and print up Hayek books, Hayek bucks, and get people to accept them. And yet, what you know, so what, what cryptocurrency has shown is that you can. You can actually go and just print up, so you'll, you'll, you'll invent a money and somehow talk people into doing it and just get off the ground from nothing. Uh, so this, this actually goes against something that, you know, like uh, what's called the Mises regression theorem, where Mises basically said that all fiat currency has to be based originally historically in a commodity money. And yet it turns out that cryptocurrency shows that's just wrong. And you can just start off with a fiat money out of nothing, uh, hard as it is to believe. So, yeah, I will confess. When I first started meeting what I, what I think of as crypto kids, like college kids with shirts saying I, "I buy Bitcoin," and talking to them. When I first met these kids, you know, they usually they were kids. I just thought like, "There's like another ridiculous libertarian, you know, quixotic quest that will go nowhere." And I was totally wrong. And so, you know, like they're you know, like some of those kids. I don't know. Like yeah, I think some of them are. I can't. I'm not sure whether I actually met any of the became billionaires, but I wouldn't be shocked if a few of them did. Yeah. And like how wrong I was, mea culpa, uh, complete error. I apologize. A complete another retraction. Uh, the world is just more is a stranger than I had that I that I was willing to believe. I was wrong. And and you know Tyler Cowen will say, or people like Tyler will say, hey, you know we don't need to denationalize money. You know we've had two percent inflation for the last fifty years. You're pretty stable. And do you think the government should be getting in in the in in the money supply? Well, so what I would say is that this is one of the privatizations that is most fraught with extreme peril of screwing it up. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would be super nervous if government said we're going to go and privatize the currency. I'd want to say, how exactly? What's the plan? How are you going to do this? So, you know, like, like you know, anytime there's a major currency reform, there, I would say there's at least a one in three chance of a, a very severe downsides. So, yeah, I mean, I would probably put this, you know, very low on my list of things to privatize. You know, like, I understand the logic behind it. And, you know, know, a lot of it primarily, sure, governments, you know, like like in rich countries have done okay for the last 50 years, but can we trust them into the future? I'm like, "Ah, they've screwed it before, yeah. yeah, But still, uh, you know, like the risk of running another Great Depression from screwing up the, just the conversion rate on on how you move it. Or... Doing what you know, what Germany did, where they overvalued the East German mark, uh, which uh, really did seem to lead to lasting harm for Eastern Germany, in turn leading to a bunch of other bad things. Uh, 
I would be very skittish on that. And especially because I just don't see that the private alternative is likely to be that much better. So again, for most products, you know, when, like when you privatize it, you can get a very large gain in productivity. And for privatization of money, I don't see that we're getting too much of a gain if we're just if we're talking about you know dollars or euros or you know, Swiss francs or any of the other very successful currencies. So again, you know, like philosophically, I like you know, like it'd be great if it if it great if it if it happened and was done carefully. But I would not trust any existing government to do it carefully. So yeah, I'd be quite nervous about it. Do you have a take on any of uh, Glenn Wells' radical markets uh, innovations, yeah. harbinger taxes on, on in housing, or I believe he has his own sort of immigration scheme? Yeah. So yes, immigration scheme is fantastic. And I say that it's equivalent to open borders for almost all practical purposes. It's basically, he's a scheme where every American will have a right to sponsor one foreigner to live here and work here. right? And based upon what we know about the number of people that come here, this would mean that the right to go and like people, like Americans would wind up selling their rights for almost nothing because of this, you know, like uh, the, the, uh, basically the price that you would have to sell this right to be here for in order to, you know, for, for 300 million to be sold is just, you know, it would be peanuts. So in, you know, in other words, like, you know, like, you know, even in terms of the median future within the next 10 years, if anyone who wanted to could come fewer than 300 million would come. So that means that essentially the right to come here would be free and Glenn Wiles offer is equivalent to open borders. I was talking with, 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 with this a bit on Twitter because he specifies you don't actually have to work for the person for the American who sponsors you, right? And you could get and you can get insurance. So even though he says that you know the sponsor will be responsible if the person that he lets in commits a crime or whatever, still you just go and you sell it. There's some insurance, and then it open it essentially is just a stealth strategy for astronomically high immigration, which functionally equivalent to open borders. So yeah, that that idea I think is great. He actually, when I was arguing on Twitter, he was saying, well, yeah, I guess we got to go and put some limits on the amount on, on the, basically put a minimum level of contact between the sponsor and the immigrant he's sponsoring. So, you know, that could get it down a bit, but you know, that's not really in, in, in with the spirit of his idea in terms of his other proposals. Yeah. I think the other ones are basically solutions in search for a problem. He has this quadratic voting idea, which you know, has so little to do with any actual known problems with voting. I'm just baffled that, you know, that, that with the appeal, and I think it just comes down to it's elegant math and it's, it's exciting. But you know, basically the idea is that you could save your votes up and then spend them all in the one election that you really care about. Although you wouldn't get to spend them linearly. You'd spend, you, you'd get to spend the square root of them. So basically you would get more that you know, you get more than one vote in election, but you couldn't just go and bank them up for your whole life. And again, I would say, even if you could bank them up for your whole life, the odds of any one person flipping an electoral outcome are so, is so trivial that you just shouldn't expect, you know, that shouldn't expect it to very much change voter behavior. You know, I say essentially it's, you know, it's a procedure to fix democracy that doesn't make any effort to identify what the problems with democracy are and to sort of acts like, who knows what the problems are? Let's just adopt a new, uh, a new voting rule to find out. And yeah, so you know, to me, the real problem with voting is just that People have have so little influence that they uh, act almost totally emotionally. So yeah, I don't see that as in any way a useful idea. His you know his idea for uh, saying that everyone has to declare their the value they assigned all their possessions and then we fund things through property taxes. Again, you know to me this is really just a solution in search for a problem. I don't see what the big deal is that 
uh, you know, the, the people, uh, the, the, like, you know, like the idea, well, right now you don't have any way that you could go and conveniently buy a house in a neighborhood that you like because you'd have to negotiate with the owner. I mean, to me, that seems like a, a very small problem. So, yeah, I mean, again, like I just don't see exactly what, you know, what exactly that he thinks that he's doing. I know he's got a list of problems that he's solving, but again, it seems more like it's the theoretical elegance of the idea. But again, like, you know, so you know, credit where credit is due, it is an elegant idea. It's saying instead of the property tax man assessing your property, you assess it yourself, but then the tax man and as well as anyone else on earth can buy the, whatever, can buy your stuff for you at your stated price. So yeah, I mean, I understand why that's theoretically elegant, and that way you have a trade-off. If I choose too high of a price, then I get to keep it for sure, but I will have to pay up really high taxes. If I set a low price, then I avoid taxes, but at the same time, someone might make might force me to move when I don't want to, so I have to go and strike this optimum. I mean, I understand why that is theoretical appeal, but in terms of like what are the what are the big problems that the, the social problems that this is this tries to solve? Again, I just don't see that there is much of one. It's like, oh my god someone might own a car, then uh, it's too hard for me to negotiate to buy it. And so then I don't get it and stays in the hands of someone who doesn't like it as much as I do. And to me, this is so far down the list of problems that anyone should worry about. Um, You know, again, especially obviously with things like Amazon marketplace and eBay, where really you can get almost anything you want like so easily. So what further problem is harbor harbor taxation supposed to actually solve? That's actually of any quantitative importance. How do you, you know, Arnold Kling uh, came on the podcast and he's written a lot about his sort of skepticism of basically the state of macro, even some of micro, mm-hmm. um, in our ability to actually measure what's going on. And he says, uh, sort of accusing economics of being somewhat of a zombie, uh, yeah. zombie field. What are your uh, responses to that? Do you sympathize with some of that? Or how do you think about the, the, the field mm-hmm. right now in macro? Let's see. So I almost never sympathize with just someone throwing up their hands and saying this whole thing is crap. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, like you know, even like, like even when I go and read fields where I expect expect to be disappointed, I almost always find something good to read. So, you know, I've been reading a lot of sociology of poverty, and yeah, like the people writing this have a very different philosophic perspective than I do, and often write as if they are lawyers for the people that they're writing about, and yet I still learn a tremendous amount from them. So, I mean, similarly, when I look at almost any area of economic research. Like, you know, like, like, do I see a lot of room for improvement? Yes. And do I see, you know, like a lot of focusing on problems that aren't very important because they seem cool or theoretically elegant? Yeah, I see a lot of that. And yet when I, you know, go and give a thorough read, then I almost always feel like I've learned a lot of valuable things. And if there's a problem, then usually there's some constructive people out there going and proposing improvements to the problem, right? So, yeah, you know, like, for example, the consumer price index, is this a perfect measure of inflation? No, it's, it has a lot of problems. And you could then say, let's not use the consumer price index anymore. But to me, I get a lot more value out of people saying, I've proposed the following modifications of the consumer, consumer price index. Here's why. Let's go and use mine instead. So, I mean, to me, those are the kinds of people that, that I find useful. And, of course, those people are usually the first to admit, well, I'm building on the shoulders of giants. There's an existing measure around that's pretty good for a lot of purposes, but it's got some problems. I've identified the problems. I'm here to improve it. Hopefully someone will improve upon my work one day. So, I mean, that's usually my reaction. And, you know, I like, I'll say this also for, you know, fields that are in great disrepute right, right now, like social psychology. You know, right now, a lot of people are dancing on the grave. And I say, look, there's still a lot of stuff in there that seems very solid. Right. So why is it that people are so eager to go and check a whole field out? Partly there's just the sense of, well, if it's all invalid, I don't have to read it. 
<laughs> people are very lazy about reading. I found you just like the reluctance of people to just go and you know, go and do do a Google Scholar search before they blog on a topic. You know, like I'm not really stunned, but still, it's the kind of thing I feel like it should kind of it should stun you to see that people could be so, uh, you, know, you know, so much this way. You wrote the uh, the case uh, against education. I'm curious if you would write a book, some like the case of against academia or something, you know, with sort of or certain elements of it. You know, with the replicate uh, the replication crisis. Like, what is the state of social sciences today, and, and how do you sort of view academia research more broadly? Uh, right. Well, let's see. So I believe it's Sturgeon's law that 95% of everything is crap, right? I think that's Sturgeon's law, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, like, you know, most academic research, uh, almost, you know, know, zero to one people read it other than the author and with good reason, because it's on topics that are trivial and the methods are poor and the writing is poor. So put it all together. And to think that a person would spend their lives writing this kind of garbage is, it's the kind of thing that makes you nervous. Wait, am I doing that? But on the other hand, the 5%. 5% has a lot of great stuff in there. And you, know, you just got to sift through it to go and find it. So, are, are there certain fields, particularly in social sciences, that you think are perhaps either zombie or bogus? Because you know, fields always have you know, incentive to keep going. <laughs> right. So I would say, you know, like my view is the most bogus fields are what we call grievance studies. So where there is, where, you know, where it is like an identity politics field where the main thing you're trying to do is to make people in the group feel better about their group. So, you know, women's studies, ethnic studies, these are the fields that I think are the most bogus and where when you read it, it is so infused with the tone of only a monster would say anything other than uh, that isn't fully positive about our group. Uh, yeah. So that kind of stuff I have, uh, I hold in very low esteem. Of course, it's a very small number of faculty. That actually, that actually do this kind of work. They're vocal and prominent, and of course, they're prominently criticized, and, and justly so. But there's actually not that many of them. Usually, like ethnic studies is not even a real department. Instead, it's just uh, it's like a group of people that are gathered from other departments. There was this tweet the other day that basically compared, uh, it said, uh, you know, Tyler Cowens and Patrick Collison's you know, sort of progress studies is, mm-hmm. is grievance studies for neoliberals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you yeah. think of progress studies? Right. You know, it sounds like a good idea to start, you know, like, like focusing on things that are going well instead of things that are going badly. And again, like, you know, this, this actually directly parallels a uh, idea in psychology, which is positive psychology, which says that, you know, psychologists spent too much time studying people with problems and not enough time studying people that are successes. At minimum, we should study both groups to get both sides, uh, you know, to understand both the upsides and the downsides or like, like how both things happen. Yeah. So like, progress studies being like grievance studies for neoliberals. I mean, in a way, you know, like, you know, just the word neoliberals, uh, neoliberalism is a, like, you know, one of the worst, worst words out there in terms of it's, you know, like you may say it's one of the worst conspiracy theories out there because it attributes most of the problems in the world to a group that has near zero self-identified members. Right. And when, you know, and when people want to talk about neoliberalism, identify people, most commonly they point out like Larry Summers, they point at like a moderate Democrat and that guy is a horrible neoliberal. So I mean, in a way it's like a category intended to describe anyone with the slightest awareness of budget constraints or scarcity or trade-offs. So, you know, it's a, it seems to be a very silly thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think so anyway, I would, so I mean like as to what progress studies will be, I'd have to wait to read it. I don't think it's going to be uh, just a bunch of complaining about other people and you know, it's not really about identity. So I don't think so. I mean, in terms of like other fields that are 
you know, that, you know, that are good, you know, that are good. So, you know, I say like, like oftentimes like you have to go and look within a discipline and you'll see like, like, you know, within sociology, for example, I'd say, you know, like, you know, sociology of education, I've learned a ton from sociology of poverty is more mixed where you've got some very good super empirical stuff where people really just spent years of their lives trying to actually document what poverty is really like. And then this goes side by side with some of the most dogmatic philosophical writing about poverty that I've ever encountered, right? Where it's you know, people where, I mean, I mean, I've actually said that like the sort of like the more philosophical writing about poverty and sociology, you really can't tell what decade it's from. It's so fact free. I mean, it could just as easily be from today or in the 1930s because it's just a screed about you know, like, like, you know, the, the horrors of the, 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 hor- the horrible oppression of the poor and like our, our ever increasing inequality in your society and what a, you know, what a disaster capitalism is. And you're like, you're reading in 33, is it 2019? Like when, and like, you know, like, you know, like doesn't mention that there ever was, that there ever were any, any self self-identified socialist regimes in history or how those worked out. So again, like, you know, there's, you know, there is like some extremely dogmatic stuff that, that I can find there. And I really would say, Sociology of poverty is worse than sociology sociology of education, which is you know more empirical and just has less patience for this you know truly turgid, a like, like atemporal philosophizing. Two big questions in four minutes. I'll I'll, I'll say them and I'll, I'll let you uh, go where you want to go with them. So one is th- there's this book Non-Zero Robert Wright wrote mm-hmm. that says that uh, history has sort of a, a a direction towards globalism and it's either globalism or or absolute chaos as opposed to a more, you know, a thousand Israels, so to speak, uh, um, that, that version of the world. He says that that's unlikely. So one, I'm curious your thoughts on that argument. And then uh, let's, curious just for a big prediction you have for how education will, will, will change in the next decade. You wrote the case against education years ago. Peter Thiel did his Thiel fellowship a decade ago. Unclear how, how much has changed. I'm curious if you have a prediction of a big change in the next decade. Right. So let me do the second question first. So how much will education change in the next 10 years? I'll predict barely at all. I think it should change, but you know, government, I don't see any sign that government subsidies are going to be withdrawn or you are substantially reduced. Uh, there is enormous taxpayer support in favor of continuing to heavily fund education. And as long as they're getting guaranteed taxpayer money, why would they change? So, and I like, and, and then just like, like the system has been about the way that it is for you know, decades, if not centuries. So like, it just seems fool, uh, you know, foolish to go and think that there's going to be any kind of important change for a system that is so so stable and has been for so long and just doesn't face the same kind of market constraints that other industries do. So, you know, like the idea that education would be like the record industry, the record industry was supported almost uh, almost entirely by government uh, by government funding. We still have records. <laughs> so that's like, like, like they would still be getting turned out. The government would pay them the money. And then why stop producing records if the government keeps paying you without taxpayer money? The fact that people don't want them anymore doesn't, doesn't really change much of anything. That is my, my honest view about education is people are not going to listen to me and that they're going to stay the course. And, and in fact, like I, like I, I would be in no way surprised if the current brick and mortar system is continue to expand in terms of what changes will we see? There'll be some very superficial ones like online education. But that usually consists in a student at George Mason takes a George Mason class on his computer from his dorm room instead of walking 10 minutes across the campus to take it in a classroom. It saves almost no resources, doesn't free up any real estate. So it's basically just a very slight modification of the status quo. So yeah, so I don't, so I just don't think there's going to be very much change there. Wish, 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 I hope I'm wrong. Prove me wrong, kids, but I don't see it. 
in terms of like the rise of globalism, um, you know, I say like there is clearly a long run tendency towards more globalization. And it makes sense because there's a long run tendency towards cheaper transportation and cheaper communications. Saying it's inevitable is pretty silly. You know, like there was a huge interruption from World War One all the way down to about, I think, the 80s. So, yeah, if I, I'm trying to remember, I think it's around 1990 that international trade as a share of global GDP equaled the share in 1913. So, you know, like there, that, that, that's like the 20th century. There's a huge interruption in this process. You know, basically, if you got a theory where you can have 70 years, a 70 year exception in the 20 in the 20th century, it's not that great of a theory. You know, like it, it is a tendency. Again, I definitely don't think there's going to be any big reversal, right? I think you know, like, like things will probably keep going the way that they have. You know, there's always a small chance of you know of you know, things going really badly. That's why, like I said, I don't think Trump is destroying things. I think you'd rather be you know, playing with fire. Like when you play with fire, usually you're fine. You know, most, you know, like, you know, get a box with a thousand matches and light a thousand matches. Probably you'll actually come away without having to go to the hospital, <laughs> but right, probably you can do it a thousand times and you're still fine, but you still played with fire. So, you know, keep, you know like <laughs> there's a reason why people consider that dangerous, but yeah, it doesn't mean that it's that dangerous in any particular case. Uh, but, you know, when, so, you know when, when someone doesn't seem to appreciate the danger of fire, then, hmm. Getting a little worried. At least take this outside my house before you start lighting the matches. But what's, um, in terms of you know, the, you know, this question of we're going to have a world more of like a thousand Israels, or yeah, you know, I know in in non-zero, I think Wright was predicting basically a move to a gradual move towards more government. So I would say that again, this towards is one where, where, where if there is a move like this, uh, there's been an enormous interruption and reversal. You know, like the number of countries on earth has uh, increased a lot since about 1988. So there's been, uh, let's see, what would it be? I think it's like 10, 15% rise in the number of countries. So that's a pretty big re- reversal in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I don't see that, that you know, see that I meaning you're right. Also was really into like international agreements and things like that. That seems like it's done something, yeah. but, you know, it's, it's stalled for a while. But, you know, like, you know, my, my long run prediction. Yeah. Probably there'll be, you know, like over the next hundred years, I would say like seventy percent likely that we'll have that will move to a higher degree of international cooperation. Let's see, for like number of countries, yeah, like in a hundred years, do I think there will be more countries or fewer countries than now? I think I would go with fifty-five percent more, fifteen percent exactly the same, right down to the, to the digit, and then what did I say? So like fifty, and you know, then like forty percent chance of fewer. So I think we're, you know, I think it's we're more likely to move towards more countries rather than less. Would be in no way shocking if in the next five years that England splits into, you know, splits into more than one country. I mean, yeah, I give that like maybe like twenty percent chance. Then let's say ten years. Within within ten years that Eng- that there there are, more, there are more than one country in the current territory of the United Kingdom. Well, that's a good that's a good good bold prediction. Well, uh, I mean, you know, it's ten years, <laughs> yeah, and you know, like a twenty percent chance, so it's not uh, not huge, but you know, it's like like it's again, like you know, like it comes you know, it comes down to you know, like you know, Scot- Scotland seems most likely to try to get secession again and then be joined the EU if uh, if Brexit happens. So, and you think the international? It is we're sort of a pickle where we have to you know if if you know climate change is real, if AI fear is potentially real at some point, we have to solve these sort of you know somewhat abstract. Uh, problems without a clear common enemy, and and they required global governance, and that's what Robert Wright was was saying was inevitable or or perish. 
Yeah. So again, I mean, that inevitable or perish, uh, if, if I can leave, leave your audience with well, one message, anytime someone says that kind of thing, just roll your eyes and say, yeah, right. Okay. Inevitable or perish. Come on. All right. <laughs> if you were to say it's likely, or there'll be a 3% reduction in global GDP compared to what it otherwise would be. All right. Yeah. That's the kind of range that I think that is a lot more likely. Yeah. So again, for, you know, for these problems, Again, like you know, logically possible for total disaster, but I see very little sign of that. Like the, whenever I've seen estimates uh, for global warming, they are yes, we're seeing for global warming. I don't think any of the actual quantitative estimates from you know from economists on economic impacts come close to, to predicting that it will reduce that will actually give us a lower living standard than we have now. It's all just saying that things that like thing, things will improve less than we were otherwise expecting. So you know that's not perishing, not even close to it. So, yeah, and then in terms of, you know, like the AI threat, this is one that to me is so remote, so improbable. I, I think it's quite silly to be worried about it, but I've, I've done debates with other people about why I think it's just so, so, fanta- so fantastical. I think the, uh, the rolling rise at the inevitable or perish is a, is a great place to close. My guest today has been Brian Kaplan. Uh, the most recent book is uh, Open Borders. You can pre-order it now, but definitely also uh, read The Case Against Education, Myth, Rational Voter, and, and some of Brian's other, other work on his website. Brian, this has been a fantastic, a very wide-ranging interview. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. If you're an early-stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.